Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello everyone, this is Christine. I am so excited to be hosting today. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that this episode contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. So normally I would ask how everyone is doing before we get started, but I am so very excited about this episode today, and I know my co-hosts feel the same, that I am going to jump right in. I am thrilled to welcome our very first guest someone who I've been connected to from afar since 1994 when her first book came out and who in the last three or so years has become a mentor, friend, and confidant. I would like to introduce the incredible author, speaker, coach, and facilitator, Hope Edelman. Welcome, Hope. Hi, Christine. (laughs) What a great auspicious start. Hi. (laughs) Christine, thank you so much for having me here and and hi to all your co-hosts. Yes, yes, yes. And thank you so much for being with us today. In the spirit of how we like to be connected with one another and share our stories, um, not only through the podcast, but through our work in our respective organizations, I'd like us all to start by introducing ourselves. And I would like us to do that by sharing our names our mom's names, the age of your mom when she died and her cause of death, the age you were at the time of your mom's death, and then a brief sentence on how you would describe your mom. So Hope, I know that you just said your name and said hello, um, but I would love for you to start. Okay. Um, My mother's name is Marsha. She was 42 years old when she died of breast cancer after uh, 16 months of battling it, um, or 16 months after diagnosis, she, um, had three children. I was the oldest. I was 17 years old and a sentence about my mother. I would say she was fun loving. She was a musician. She played the piano. She also was very altruistic and instilled a commitment to social justice and service in her children. Love that. Thank you. Hi, Hope. I am Shadia, and my mom's name is Hattie Hend Hagen, and she was 45 when she died. Uh, She died from lymphoma cancer. Um, She had it for three years, and I was 13 years old when she passed away. I had a younger sister who was eight at the time and an older brother who was 16, so I was smack dab in the middle. Um, How I would describe my mom, she was fabulous and like beyond her years um she wore like the most fabulous outgoing like she should have been a new yorker but we were in little small town minnesota but she just had this personality that she when she walked into a room everyone knew she was there and she was always well put together and stylish so hello my name is aaron my mom's name is cheryl she was 52 when she died I was 16. She died suddenly of a cardiac arrest um, overnight. And um, I'm an only child. 
as well. So uh, describing her, I think she was so fiercely protective and caring of the people in her life. Me, other family, her friends. She really held her people very close to her um, and fiercely cared for them um, very much when she was alive. Hi, Hope. I'm Sarah. I... I was going to say I'm 32. That wasn't a question. Um, (laughs) My mom's name is Becky. She also died at the age of 42 from breast cancer. And I don't know how long she was battling it. I was four and a half when she died. And so a lot of my memories are like things that were told to me. I have a lot of home movies, thankfully, that I can watch. And so my sense of my mom is that she was someone who loved children. She was a Montessori preschool teacher. She um, loved music. She was really into going out and dancing. And my parents always had music playing in the house, it seemed. And she was just a really nurturing, gentle, kind person. I love that. I think I just learned something new about your mom being going out and dancing. I don't, I, I, don't, know, I don't share that part often. I realized she was like into the party scene with my dad. Oh. Like my dad took it too long, too far. But um. <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I love, lear- I love that, that we get the opportunity to, to learn new things along the way. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Sarah, did you say her name? Becky. Yes. Thank you. So Becky Jane Peterson, and then she married my dad and became a wise man. So Becky Wiseman. So um, I'm Christine again, and my mom is Laura Lee. She died when she was 44 years old of ovarian cancer. She was sick for three and a half years, and I was 15 at that time of her death. I guess I always like to go to feeling like she was a light and that she had the most contagious laugh. She was just a a, a loving, nurturing, caring friend, mother, sister, daughter, spouse. And I'm so thankful for her. She, she's all of our moms, right? They brought us here today together. Okay, I have a surprise question because all of you got to see my outline before this started, right? But I'm going to give you a surprise question. I would like you to share how you think your mom would describe you now how your mom would describe you now. Brief sentence, just brief, okay? (laughs) Dean, I'm so mad at you. What? (laughs) This is so hard to talk about yourself, right? It's a great question. No, it's it's a great question. It's kind of fun. Do you want to start, Christine? Oh, (laughs) Shad, that's rude. I'm sure. I mean, I I saw Hope leaning in there too. (laughs) That's a hard question, you know, is it how I think, how I wish my mom would see yes. me now? Yeah, or how I love that. I think she would see me now based on who she was at 42 when she died. Yeah. Because that doesn't count for how she might have changed over time. Yeah, so yeah. There's really two answers. Oh, that's a good point. I really appreciate that. That's really good. Um, I can give you both. Yes, let's go yeah. with both. Okay. I think right now... I would like to think that if she were alive right now, she would think that I am very brave for changing my life in so many ways and weathering weathering the changes. At 42, if she saw me now, 
I think she'd think I was kind of out of control and chaotic and not making the best choices for myself, to be honest. (laughs) I'd like to think that over time, we would have gotten to know each other in a way where maybe she would have evolved and respected me. And of course, that's always the question, would I be who I am today if she'd lived making these choices? I don't know. So I'd like to think she would say, hey, girlfriend, you're really brave. You've been through a lot in the last two years, including, you know, the worldwide pandemic that we've all lived through. And I I think you've done a pretty good job of keeping things together and still being, you know, finding so many ways to be happy. Let's go see Mortar, Shad. Yeah, I think regardless of the scenario of then and now, like, I don't know what it would have been, I guess now, but I generally think that she would be so proud of me for what I've accomplished, which is fascinating, right? Because if the things I've accomplished now are truly because she died, like the things that I'm the most proud of are because she died. So that's really interesting in itself. But I think she would think like, I'm a, a great mom. Not always, but I think my mom would think that I'm a good mom and a good wife. And um, I think she'd be proud of like the family that I've created and that I have really good friendships. Like my mom had the best friends and I think she'd be happy to know that I have like really strong women in my life that will support me and will also tell me how it is. So that was the kind of woman she was. I love it. Erin? Yeah, I really appreciate Hope you bringing up that distinction of kind of like our mothers being stuck at this age, stuck in time. It, uh, it's it's like bringing them out of a time capsule. And I I can't imagine my mother at any other age, at any other time than what she was when she died. So when I think of her and apply it to my life, it's she is 52. And oftentimes I'm still the 16-year-old I was when she died. And so distinguishing that I think that she would be really proud of me for the ways in which I've chosen to live my life in spite of a lot of things that have happened to me, including her death and other things, family breaks and, you know, everything that's happened in my life. And like Shadia said, so many things that I'm proud of, so many good things that have happened in my life probably wouldn't have happened if she hadn't died. But I think that she would be proud of me. And I think that she would be so happy to see the community of friends and support network that I've built for myself and how independent I've become and everything that I've accomplished. Um, I think that she might tease me a little bit about the ways in which I've gotten here, maybe some not so good choices along the way. But I think ultimately she would be very happy and proud of where I'm sitting at right now today. And she would have no problem vocalizing that to me. Um, She was always extremely vocal in telling you how she felt and especially if there was love or pride in there. So I can, I can see her being extremely vocal about that. It's interesting that you bring that up because yes, when I think of my mother at 42, I'm 17 again. You know, I'm trying to imagine her from, because I've lived so many years beyond how old she was when she died. And so I think, is is it, am I thinking, you know, oh, my mom would think that my life is chaotic and crazy and that I haven't made the best choices. Is that how she would have looked at a 50 something year old woman in my position? Mm-hmm. Or is that just how she would have thought of me at 17? I, I don't know. 
I mean, maybe I don't give her enough credit because all of us died before we got to know our mothers as women. She might've thought, hey, you know, you're, you raised your children and now you're going through a divorce and you're branching out on your own and having all of these adventures and experiences. Go girlfriend. Like maybe she would have thought that about someone 15 years her senior. I just don't know. I just know what I think she would have thought of me at 17, not knowing what was coming next and not being too worried about it. Totally. And like everything that everyone has said resonates. So, I mean, so much of what people are saying resonates. It's like impossible for me to see myself now as someone like separate from my mom's death. And that's like, how do I imagine her seeing me? It's, yeah, it's kind of like a mind exercise. Um, But I would think that she would be very proud of, you know, what I've, what I'm capable of overcoming clearly and like moving through and getting through like that resiliency, but also I think that she would be amused by me and appreciate my kind of quirky, goofy, strange qualities that I (laughs) don't know if a lot of people do, but definitely like my chosen family, like people do. So as all of you were talking, I was thinking about how really, I think those three and a half years before my mom died really changed her. And I think that her illness opened her up in a new way as far as encouraging us to, me and my, I have two older brothers, um, encouraging me and my two older brothers to really explore the world in a different way and ask questions about things. And so, you know, when she died, when I was 15, I, I had this really different experience with her. I I think that I experienced two losses. I, you know, I feel like I experienced the loss of who she was when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And then again, when she actually died. So, you know, I, (laughs) uh, it's, I don't know. I, I I asked, now I can't answer my own question, but I feel like when I look back to who she was as that 44 year old woman, I think that she would be extremely proud of me. I think that she would see me as a pattern breaker. I see that I have repeated some patterns in my marriage that I think she engaged in in her marriage. And I think that um, if she wouldn't have gotten sick, she likely would have gotten divorced. And here I am now divorced. Um, how many months? Um, and I, I see myself as a pattern and cycle breaker. And I think that she would acknowledge that. And I think she would be proud of that. And I think she would have been the one to have done that if she had more time. I really, I really believe that. I I know she was moving towards that before she was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. How do I think that, you know, if she were as a 75 year old woman now, if she were still alive or 76, I, I think that she would, you know, think I was kind of a ridiculous mom at times, um, with some of my antics with the kids. And I think that she would be proud of that, especially that part of who I am, uh, mothering my children and, you know, we'd be best friends. So she'd live next door. (laughs) I've created that story. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, I get to create that story. I'm claiming it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No one can tell you that your romantic version would be untrue. Yeah. I know. Right. 
You know, that's so interesting. I, I think, you know, I think when you, when you talk about that, Christine, that, you know, as mothers, how many of you have daughters? Anyone here have daughters? Shadia and Christine have daughters. And I do, I have two. And I think, you know, in the most ideal mother-daughter relationship, when it's functional and warm and consistent and loving, a mother would want her daughter to become like a better version of herself, or at least the best version that she can be. Mm -hmm. And I do think there were things my mother didn't get to do because she was limited either by her era, you know, or her family or just the culture at large. And I do think she would look and say, you went to graduate school, you pursued your art, you published books, you started a company. I think she would be proud about those things. The same way that I look at my daughter and I think, oh my God, she's so much smarter and more put together at 24. Then I was saying this to a friend the other day than I was at that age because she didn't have the, the adversities that I struggled with during my teen years, you know, losing my mom and my, my dad being as problematic as he was. I mean, she's had other things, other adversities to face, but none that I would think are that disruptive or cataclysmic or seismic as, as the ones that I lived through. And so I feel like she got a, you know, a push. And now it's so exciting to watch her go out in the world and have the kind of courage I didn't have at 24. Cause I was all about trying to find safety and feel like things were in control. I've actually thought about that hope. I know this is kind of a sidebar, but I have this fear that I'm going to like envy that in my future child, like this. Right. And I'm just, yeah. Like, and that there's like shame around that. It's like, you want the best for them and it's not fair. You know, it doesn't feel fair, but it's your own kids. So it's like, I'm just, I have no idea how it's going to feel in the moment. There's a distinction though, between feeling jealous of your child and feeling sad and upset for your younger self who couldn't, who didn't get those things. Yeah. And I think as long as we can keep that line clear, you know, when I look at my daughter, I feel sad and sometimes that at 24, I couldn't be who she is because I was struggling so much with emotional and financial and social problems, but, or issues, you know, that I, or challenges, I should say, but I don't look at her and feel jealous of her and like want to push her down so that I can feel better. That would be very problematic for a mother to feel that. Right. So I feel I don't know if I'd call it envy. I think I, I, I feel like a comparative sadness for myself at 24. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think that's okay. That's okay. Cause then I can tell that 24 year old, Hey sister, you did the best you could. You had a lot of obstacles there that you had to overcome. Like your backpack had a couple heavy rocks in it and you, it just took you longer to figure out how to put those down. And you learned a lot from that too. And what you learned from that are things that your daughter didn't have to learn. And you're grateful that she didn't have to learn it, but she didn't get certain, you know, insider knowledge or wisdom about how the world works in that I have. So it's not really, you know, it's just a different experience. Christine, that makes sense to you. I see you nodding your head. Yeah. Yeah. I am like, that is so wise. That is so wise. Well, I'm old. I'm older than all your moms were when they died, which was like a freak out moment for me when you were saying that. And I'm in great health, thank God. But, you know, yeah, it's, you know, you just accumulate experience. And ideally from that comes some kind of (laughs) opinion, if not wisdom or insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely know we've talked about this before, Sarah. I don't know if you remember, but I had said that I had a moment just one time with my oldest daughter where I actually 
said something along the lines of like, at least your mom didn't die or, or, you know, when you were 15 or, and that felt so terrible when I said it, right. And so inappropriate really. But I was feeling that in the moment I was angry and it came out. It was a great lesson for me that I was never going to say that again to my children, but also like, no, she you know, hasn't had her mom die. And thank God for that. And she, because of that, does not have the perspective, just what you were saying, Hope. I mean, that she's there, none of them will ever have the perspective that I did at that. They will take this for granted. Yeah. And, and we have to really, granted, and they're lucky that they can. Right. And we have to really accept there. There's just an acceptance that acceptance that comes along with parenting. And then for me also this awareness of just gratitude. I'm so glad that they don't have to. So yeah, I don't know if that's helpful at all. Well, it is, Ken. Can I say something to that? Because I was just talking about this on a podcast the other day that there's, it comes a time in most motherless mothers' parenting experiences when we have the impulse, and it may be more than once, to say to a child, you have no idea how lucky you are to have a mother. You should be treating me better because they're pushing against us or acting out or throwing tantrums. And, and we feel like, gosh, I wish that I had my mother around to do that at that age or now. And what I tell women is, it's, that's a perfectly natural impulse for these women. But here's my suggestion. You're allowed to say it once and choose the moment carefully. Because when you say it, like you said, Christine, it's going to feel terrible and you're not going to want to say it again. But you may just need to externalize that and get that out there Try to say it to a child who's old enough to understand it. Try to say it in a way that maybe they can take it in. But, you know, give yourself permission to say it once. But again, choose that moment really carefully. It's like your, you know, your golden coin. You're only going to give it away once. And um, I remember the time that I used it. And it was, I think it maybe made a difference. I don't know. I'd have to ask my daughter. It was such a silly thing. You know, it was such a silly thing. She wanted to upgrade her cell phone and I needed to be with her at the sprint office because I, the count was in my name and I couldn't go there that afternoon when she wanted it. And she was complaining about the fact that sprint was going to make me be there. And she said, well, what if you were dead? I'd have to go without you. I was like, mm-hmm. And, and I said, if I were dead, you'd have much bigger problems than the inability to upgrade a cell phone. <laughs> so I really think that we need yeah. to Go in the other room right now and think about what you said because you're really lucky that I'm here to be able to go to a sprint store with you. And I don't I don't think you really understand that. So maybe you go think about that in the other room and I'm gonna calm down in this room because that really upset me to hear you say that. And she said, yeah. okay. And she went into the other room. And I feel like, okay, it was better than you know, like shouting at a 10-year-old, which I always had the impulse to do. But having written motherless mothers, I knew that that was not good for my child that I was doing that so I'd feel better. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't doing it in a way that would be good for my child. It would, in fact, probably really upset them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I don't think I ever used it with my younger one, actually, because I felt so bad having said it to her sister. And I was like, I'm not going to do that again ever. So use it really carefully. And then if you have, Christine, you have four children? Yeah, yeah. You don't have to do it four times if you don't. No, I used it with my oldest when she was 15. So the same age you know, she's 16 now, same age I was when I, when, when my mom died. And, um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever, I don't think it'll ever come out of my mouth again, but I also will say I was not intentional. Like I was in, I was angry. I was in a moment. So it was more of a, 
it was reactionary. It wasn't something where I was trying to teach any sort of good lesson or, or be thoughtful in what I was saying. It was, it was out of anger. But we're allowed to do that. We're allowed yeah, to be triggered absolutely. and angry. Lots of stuff triggers us and feeling taken advantage of when we are trying so hard, you know, to be the best mom we can be because we didn't have a mom and we feel like we're underappreciated or being taken for granted. It, that can be a real trigger. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. So Hope, you are the author of six nonfiction books, right? Is that right? And you're, and, okay. And you, are you co-author to seventh? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So seven, seven nonfiction books, including two that we will be focusing on today, uh, Motherless Daughters and The After Grief. I wanted to start by sharing that I first became aware of your first book, Motherless Daughters, shortly after it was published in 1994. I was 19 years old. And although my family did not talk much about my mom after she died in 1990, when I was 15 years old, I was always very eager to explore my emotions and my grief related to the loss of my mom. So when I found your book, it was like all of the feelings were validated. And I know you have heard this thousands of times, but all of those feelings of loneliness and isolation that I had felt those four years since her death, you know, I just remember ripping through those pages and highlighting and feeling so seen saying, yes, yes, like these women get me and I get them. And it's funny too, because I was only 19 and there's so much in it that's beyond what is, you know, a 19 year old has experienced yet. But I still felt this like, finally, I was not alone, you know? I also found that I really carried the contents of the book and its significance with me after reading it at that time. I don't believe I've ever shared this with all of you, but in 2002, when I was apartment hunting in Minneapolis, in anticipation of a move from the Chicago area, I looked at dozens of apartments and finally came to the one I decided on. It was this super beautiful, like just gorgeous apartment in uptown, um, it was way over my budget. You guys, it's like it was like eight fifty in two thousand two. It was a one bedroom. It was so expensive. But I was like, I'm gonna go forward with it because when I was on the tour, I saw on the nightstand of the current occupant a copy of the book Motherless Daughters. And I was like, I am meant to be in this apartment, even though it was ridiculously over my budget. So anyway, I think that's just a... Did you move in? Oh, yeah. I live there. Yeah, I live there. That (laughs) is amazing. You were like, the book brought you there. I know. I know. Obviously, as I've gotten older, you know, I see how the relationship with my grief continues to change. And so has the understanding of your book. Um, Having reread it recently, it especially struck me how young you were when you wrote the book. You were in your 20s, right? um, Let's see. I left graduate school when I was 28 years old with a contract. So I sold the book when I was 27 years old and it was published when I was 29. Yeah. That's why I think of After Grief as Motherless Daughters for Grownups, because I was able to write it from such a more mature perspective 25 years later. I love that. I really feel like I'd like you to speak to to how you came to the point of writing this book at that particular time in your life. In my opinion, 
even though you just spoke to like how you feel like the after grief is this next version with your different perspective, you, this book is so wise and so impactful. How did you decide to write this book at this time in your life? Oh, oh, well, because it didn't exist. I needed it. <laughs> and um, I thought this is ridiculous. All these books out there on mother loss assume that you're in your thirties or forties or fifties when your mother dies. And I mean, I had a sister and I had a neighbor who'd lost her mom. Like I knew it happened. I just mm-hmm. didn't. And I, so I started reading a bit about early mother loss. There wasn't a lot out there at that time. So it was, you know, a big library sweep over, you know, a couple of weeks got me most of the literature that had been written. But when I started talking to people and saying, I'm interested in writing this book, they'd say, oh, you have to talk to this person. You have to talk to that person. My cousin was 12 when her mom died. My neighbor was, you know, 20 when her, when her mom died by suicide. You know, my, my brother married a woman who was six when her mom died in a car accident. You know, everyone knew somebody. And so it wasn't hard to find women to interview. And after I finished graduate school, I moved to New York City. And this was all pre-internet, which makes me feel like a relic. But um, <laughs> it was not as easy to find people to interview. I mean, there were lots of them. But I put an ad in the back of the Village Voice in New York City, because that's how you know we used to do stuff in those days, you know, in, in the dark ages. And I got so many phone calls from women who wanted to be interviewed. I couldn't possibly field all of the requests. And I thought, wow, I am really onto something here. And then started going around with my tape recorder and it, hearing women's stories. But I wrote it because I, I, you know, I just kept waiting for someone else to write it and nobody did. And then I was in a graduate program in nonfiction writing at the University of Iowa with a, a group of professors who said, you know, well, you're here to learn how to write a book so, or essays so, or nonfiction. So why don't you just do it? And I thought, oh, oh, I guess I, I, could try, I could try that. I mean, yeah, I'm about to graduate. I don't know what I'm going to do next. So yeah, I'll try to write a book proposal. So I went to the book, local bookstore and I got a book literally called How to Write a Book Proposal. That was the name of it. I just followed what it said. I know it's so funny now. I just followed the template in this How to Write a Book Proposal. And I had a professor friend of mine like edit it for me. And then I started sending it out to agents. I was so naive, but you know what, when you're on the right track, the doors open, they open, they open. And that's what happened. And, um, that book came into being and it was published in 1994, the first edition. And now it's in its third edition. The 20th anniversary edition is the one that's out now. And that's been updated. And so I think it was 2006, I redid it. And then in 20, in 2014, um, there was the third edition. And so I was revising this book at really different points in my life. And that was an extraordinary experience. I don't know many authors who get to do that, who get to go back and revise their book, uh, such a personal book at different times in their life, because your perspective on the same set of events changes over time. Like I wrote this book a certain way when I was 29, because I looked at those events and I had a, you know, a, an interpretation of them that was very much from my 29-year-old self. And then when I went back at 41 and redid the book, edited it, I was about to turn the age my mom was when she died. And I had two little girls and I had a completely different relationship to those same set of facts that I had written about in the past. And then when I redid it again, the next time I was in my fifties, early fifties. And I was like, wow, I'm so far past all of the anxieties and fears that I had. Cause a lot of them didn't come true. So 
I'm not even the best person to write this book anymore. So I'm going to let that 41-year-old self still tell the story. And I'm just going to update the data because I thought she's the one who needs to speak to these women, not me, because I'm a little too distant now from a lot of the fears and anxieties and worries that I had back then. So um, that's when I realized, oh, if my perception is changing so much over time like this, is it happening to other people too? And that's how the after grief was really born. Because I thought it looks so different 30 years down the road. Why? How? What do I do with that? You know, it doesn't mean I'm not over it yet. Over it the way, you know, that culture. No, of course I carry it with me, but I carry it with me differently. And I was really interested in qualitatively, how is it different now, 30 years later? And is there something there that will help other people also feel like they're not alone if they still feel deeply affected by a major loss that occurred when they were young? And oh boy, does the after grief get into that. Like yeah. the qualitative, like, oh my gosh, like, oh. My story is going to shift and change and how your life can shift and change if you allow your story to shift and change. If you allow, allow your relationship to those set of facts to evolve over time and you don't hang on to a rigid story that becomes part of your identity because then it's really hard to shift it. But if you allow that story to change and grow and shift and your perspective as well, you will change and grow. And that's part of the beauty of long-term grief, you know, that goes hand in hand with the sorrow, which exists forever. I mean, we're, we're always going to be sad. I can't say I'm grateful that my mother died. No, I'm grateful for some of the things that happened as a result of her dying. But I'm always going to be sad that her life was so short and that she was taken from her children and that we lost her. There's nothing to be happy about there. But I can be grateful for everything that followed. But I had choice in that. You know, I had agency. Some of those things were circumstance, but some of those things I made happen, like they were willful choices. And I would not have been able to make some of those choices had she lived. I do know that. It makes me think about the the women that you interviewed for motherless daughters, and then you found 18 of them to interview 25 yeah. years later for the after grief. Can you speak to that? The, like those women in particular, how you saw shifts for them or, or maybe even not? I mean, I'm curious. That was one of the most interesting parts of writing that book. I mean, it was fascinating on a personal level to find these women all those years later. It was 26, 27 years later after the original interview. So I had interviewed them in the early 1990s for Motherless Daughters. And um, when I was writing The After Grief, I was feeling frustrated a bit because I couldn't find any studies that tracked the bereaved over like 20 or 30 years so that they could talk about what their experience was like all those years later. There were some studies done on adults who were bereaved as children. That's a psychological term adults bereaved as children, but they hadn't been interviewed as children or teenagers. So it was just, you know, their memory of who they had been back then, you know, and their retrospective uh, analysis of it. But I was looking for something that had actually gotten their stories when they were younger and then tracked them over time. And there wasn't anything that tracked anyone for more than maybe seven years or so. And and then I remembered, oh, I have all these interviews in my garage from these women that I interviewed back in the early 90s for Motherless Daughters. What if I found some of them? And I knew where some of them were because they'd stayed in touch. What if I re-interviewed some of these women? So it was like I had to have mad Google skills. 
because I didn't feel like, you know, hiring private investigators. There were 81 women, I think, uh, or 92, maybe 92, 92 women who were interviewed for motherless daughters, 81 for the after grief people. Of those 92 original women, a lot of them had changed their names. Some of them had passed away, but I tracked down about 18 of them and re-interviewed a number of them or most of them. And it was just fabulous to see how their lives had changed, how their perception had, how they told their stories differently. On the one hand, there were things that had been elements of their story that had been really important to them when they were young, like in their 20s. A lot of these women were in their 20s and 30s when they did the first interview, some early 20s. One was a teenager. And there were parts of the story that were critically important to them at that time that never got mentioned in the interview 26 years later. It just wasn't, because I just said, tell me your story as you tell it now. It was really open-ended. There were other parts that they had been reviewing in their minds and telling over and over, either to themselves or others, that came out almost verbatim the way that they had expressed it 26 years earlier. That was really interesting too. This is probably a PhD dissertation if I ever went back for a PhD to really analyze. It was so interesting. But what I found also really fascinating was when they talked about the arc of their story and their recovery from mother loss, you know, or their adjustment. A lot of them, the majority, talked about that first interview and how that was a turning point in their story. And I hadn't ever realized that answering that ad in the Village Voice or getting a referral from a friend would be so important to them. But they said it was the first time anyone ever asked me or showed interest in my, my story and really listened. And I felt like I was doing something good for other women. And so a lot of them included that in their story of loss. Because I was going for what I call a story of loss, not the story of how a mom died. That's called a death reenactment story. So I was looking for how the death of a mom affected women, not how the mom died. The death reenactment is part of the story of loss, but I was looking for the bigger picture. I just, I know we're like done on time, but just, I feel like this is coming so full circle with you saying like simply the act of sharing one story is such a momentous point in people's journey. And that is exactly what this podcast is, is about. It's critically important in social psychology. Yes. in social psychology been really influenced by the work of John Harvey and social psychology, who says that first we have to develop a story in our mind that makes sense to us, which is hard if we don't have all the facts or people are not telling us the truth. We have to create a story that feels complete to us. Then we have to test it out in the world and see how it feels and, you know, finesse it maybe and edit it a little bit for ourselves. And then we have to share with it and confide in other people. And the confiding part is so important. And to get what narrative therapy calls outsider witnesses and validations. This is 100% why I do these calls every week for motherless daughters on Tuesdays and now on Thursday mornings, where like 60 women come together live and we talk about different topics and we share our stories because you get witnesses for, and, and people validate you. And it's that validation and normalization is so critically important because otherwise we are left feeling alone and aberrant with our own experiences. And that, that shouldn't be part of grief. It never was before the 20th century. And so that's something, you know, that I'm really working to try to turn around with others in the field. So one of the topics I did want to focus on in this conversation as part of the after grief in chapter seven and chapter eight, the power of story, 
um, and then people we need to talk and write and paint and perform um, those two chapters you really focus on the importance of story and storytelling and you know we also talk about that in this podcast and then of course we all four of us are involved in she climbs mountains the local nonprofit that serves women and you know our mission is is storytelling we know that healing comes from like you said being validated and witnessed uh, you know if not exactly the same the experience of losing that essential caregiver and role model in our lives I am wondering if you can speak personally to like the, what that has brought to you and your healing. Obviously, I feel like your, your focus is so outward. You know, when I'm with you, it's, it's really about healing the communities that you're a part of and the women that come to you, um, through your books and through your workshops and retreats. But I'd love for you to speak to your own healing in sharing your story. Well, part of what I experience now, Christine, is that, I mean, I, for me, the healing is a very reflexive experience. When I'm of service to others, I feel like it it brings something back to me. It's not the only reason I do it, you know, but I do feel that's a form of post-traumatic growth. In the aftergrief, I talk about the rings of growth. And I talk about how when we first experience a loss, we're sort of like in the red hot center of a bullseye. And we're just trying to get from day to day. And then slowly, slowly, we expand outward into uh, this middle ring, which is the ring of everyday life. And we get sucked back into the center, you know, in that emotionally painful place if there are sensory triggers or if we experience another loss or, you know, a memory comes up that is painful or we get new information that we didn't have before. But then, you know, and then we go back out, we expand back out. So I think of grief as a process of contraction and expansion, contraction and expansion. Some people use the metaphor of stages or waves or steps, but I like expansion and contraction. But I also think there's a third outer ring, and that's the ring that I call growth, which is when we get to where we feel stable enough and we want to go out in the world and share what we've learned or what we know, because we do get valuable insight. And some of us at a very young age, you know, too early sometimes for, but we understand, you know, the some of the mystery of life, some of the existential crises that come with death, some of the preciousness of life, the fragility of life. And, and also, you know, compassion and empathy often grow from having a, experienced a tragedy or a trauma at a young age. And so it's in that third ring out there of post-traumatic growth that I try to spend most of my time. But, you know, of course I'm human. I get sucked back into the other rings all the time. I'm moving fluidly between them like everyone else. But for me, one of the challenges of my own adjustment and healing is to maintain a relationship with my mom as my mom and not as, you know, this icon of a movement or the representation of, you know, a mother who died, you know, because it's like, she's commodified. You know, I talk about her so much for my work that I have to remember who she was as a person and who she was to me talking with my siblings about that helps, you know, looking at photos from childhood. But because I talk about her so much in my work, it sort of sometimes dilutes, I think, the emotional impact of having lost her. And so sometimes it still comes and smacks me in the side of the face because I talk about her so much. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Are you starting to feel the same way with the work that you're doing? That oh, you yeah. talk about your mom yeah. so much that you have to maintain that your own relationship with her in addition to your public relationship with her. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's It's... Um, and there's almost this feeling of disconnection at times. And I think part of it too has to do with 
wanting to really hold space and be present for other people. And then there's not really room for my stuff. You know, it's, it would be too much almost. Yeah. It's almost becomes where you're most comfortable keeping her at a distance closer to other people and their knowledge of who she is and what she meant to you versus your own personal Mm -hmm. connection. That's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I have never thought about this before, but that was, I just had an Oprah moment with that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I very much relate to that. (laughs) At the motherless daughters retreats, we do the four day ones in person, which we're getting back to thankfully in, in March with a couple lined up, but we do an exercise where we reframe stories and we talk about how the ending of every story can be the beginning of another. So if you are telling a story in which your mother dies at the end, like that's your you know dramatic high point of the climax of that story, what other story does it set into motion? And are any of those stories, have they led to things in your life that are good for you or others? And for some women, this is the first time they've been encouraged to think that way. Like, I can't say that anything good ever came out of my mom's death because they're so in the story that my mom died and, and everything fell apart and my life has been really hard ever since. You know, that's what's called a contamination narrative, actually, in um, social psychology. But the redemption narrative is the story of, yes, this bad thing happened. And then as a result, some good things came. And they ask me to give them an example. And I say... Well, yeah, I mean, I have a story where my mom died when I was 17, but then it led to all these other things. We're all sitting in this room together right now because my mom died when I was 17. And then I always start choking up. I start crying because I feel like, oh my God, you know, or sometimes I'll be like in a room of 200 women who are there having a luncheon because this book came out in 1994. And I think, oh my God, like all these women are here because my mom died and I wrote a book about it. And I, I, I get really choked up, you know, it's rare, but it still happens. And then, then that's when I know I'm connecting with my story, my personal story, not my public story. I work with, you know, some women who, um, and have interviewed some women whose moms were famous, you know, celebrity deaths and super hard for them because they're struggling to find the private space in that loss. And when there's so much public attention being given to the loss, there might be a trial or there's a lot of media coverage of it. And, and I feel like this is the same thing, but 20 or 30 years or similar 20 or 30 years later, where I'm trying to find the space to have my own private after grief without it being shared with everybody else, because I do share so much of my mom and my story with the larger culture. I wanted to invite my co-hosts, if any of you have a question before we wrap up. I was curious what words of wisdom you would offer to your 32-year-old self. <laughs> That's very specific, Sarah. <laughs> when you were 32. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is a good one. Well, when I was 32, I got married and I was pregnant. Let's see. What I would tell myself was that to trust more that things would be okay, to be less anxious and worried and concerned about safety, you know, to have just more trust in my own competence. And I think also I was scared that I couldn't do this without my mom. And just tell myself, yeah, it's going to be harder for you than it's going to be for other women, but it's not going to be impossible. And it's still going to be great. That's what I would tell my 32-year-old self. 
Oh my gosh. That was, I know you were talking to your 32 year old self, but I really felt that. And I almost feel like that was my mom also coming. That That's all the things I would want my mom. I would love to hear from my mom too. So thank you, Hope. I just have to add to, can I share that you're getting married or did you yeah, share that? I'm did I miss getting, that? Well, I'm getting hope. You said you were married and you had gotten pregnant at 32 or I you got, got married. I got married at 32. I, was, I got pregnant. Then I got married to the, my boyfriend. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got married and we had the baby when I was 33. Oh my, I, I, we might be on like the exact same life trajectory. <laughs> okay, we can stay in touch girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask a question about my, since I'm in my forties now, just turned 40, I was going to go around that same route, but I, I actually, I thought about a different question, just being on this, being on this call that I just can't not ask. And it's probably not going to be put well together because it's just inside my brain, but I'm wondering, obviously we have been are still in a pandemic. And I'm curious, like, how do you feel like people's grief journey in the mother loss world has like changed or evolved? Or like, what do you think has happened in the last two years with grief? Like, has all of a sudden your book sales out of the water because everyone's actually trying to deal with grief? Or is it that people are just shutting down? I'm just so curious about that. That's interesting. I think I have to answer that in two ways for women who have lost their moms recently, like in the past two years yeah. and women whose loss was in the past and is being reactivated are having resurgences of grief due to COVID. So I am seeing resurgences of grief due to COVID, but I'm also seeing women really get a sense of their own resilience and saying, I went through something really hard in the past. So I'm being asked to do something really hard again. I, I, I trust that I can do this. So that's kind of amazing. And that's a process of self-discovery. But I'm seeing in the motherless daughters community, especially on the Tuesday weekly calls that we do, more and more women joining whose loss is recent. And um, not just to COVID, but who've lost their moms in the past year or two, because I think we're talking more openly about grief. And so they're looking for support and um, there's more available. And, but they still want to be with other women who've lost their mothers. Like they want that specific connection with women who've lost moms. So on the Tuesday calls, we have about 160 or 170 subscribers and about 60 or 70 women show up live every week. And there are some women there whose moms died three months ago and some women there whose moms died 60 years ago. And generally, you know, for a retreat, I wouldn't mix those populations because that's such a different experience. But on these calls, they learn so much from each other. And um, I think they, I, I, we find it that, that they're intergenerational and they're, you know, interdisciplinary in a way to be one of the highlights of the call, one of its best features. But I am finding more women with recent loss who are looking for services just for women who've lost mothers instead of general grief work. And, and that might be because we're becoming, I hope, more literate about grief in the culture. You know, it's, it's in the media more. I wish that the culture was, you know, more appalled by the fact that 800,000 people have died in the past two years. That's still incomprehensible to me, that there isn't just a much larger awareness of how big that number is and what we're all living through. And that's completely unacceptable. It sort of feels like once we passed a certain number, you know, there's this kind of like resignation that it's just going to get higher. And I feel like that is not 
where I sit. I sit here thinking 800,000 people is a lot of people and way too many. And how can we keep it from getting larger? As we close, I'd like to share this gorgeous quote from your book, The After Grief. This passage is found in the introduction, page 27, slightly modified for comprehension. Over time, the gravity of sorrow can exist alongside an appreciation for the insights that arise from that suffering. The after grief asks us to hold such competing truths side by side, not as contradictions, but as companions. Available language fails me. I can't find a word in English to express this idea. The closest I can come is the Portuguese saudade, a feeling of longing for a person, place, or object that's been loved and lost with equal measures of joy for having had the love and sadness for having lost it. Saudade, also known as the love that remains, stationed at the midpoint along the spectrum between gratitude and sorrow. As we end our time together, I'd love for each of us to offer gratitude for one another or this time together that we can carry with us into this week. My word of gratitude is sisterhood because the Motherless Daughters movement has always been about women helping women and creating community. And at the retreats that we run, there's a saying that we arrive as familiar strangers and we leave as sisters. Sisterhood's my word. That's so beautiful. I'm super grateful for where I'm at right now in my grieving journey. And I know we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. As you all know, you know, I'm going through a major loss as we speak, the death of my dad just a month ago and reading the after grief while experiencing that and then having this resurgence of grief from my mom's death and everyone else I've lost, it allows me to have even greater appreciation for the wisdom that is in, you know, Hope's book, The After Grief and also Motherless Daughters. But again, The After Grief is just, it's hitting home so closely right now. And I'm so grateful to have, first of all, to be doing a project that, you know, caused me to read this piece of literature and then to get to interview and talk to the person who wrote it. And now to be here and debriefing with you all, I I just... I know I've been like the gratitude Grinch in the past, but right now I'm like, I'm actually like feeling a lot of gratitude. I am just so thankful for the opportunity uh, to connect with Hope and all of you. I think, like you said, um, Sarah, being able to read the book, I hadn't read it and I've had it for a while separate from this podcast, I purchased it. And um, it's, you know, sitting with a huge stack of books uh, next to my bed. And, you know, I finally had to yank it from the stack. And I just there there's so much that resonated. And, you know, obviously, I'm passionate about talking about this topic and the importance of sharing our stories and, and connecting with others with the shared experience. So you know, this just feels like kind of a culmination of a lot of good things to be able to talk with Hope about her books and and to be validated, I think, in this work that we're doing. I am grateful to Hope for being with us today. I thought it was just amazing and I could have used like three more hours with her. But I think I'm just really grateful and looking forward to having so many more guests on our pod. I just, I get so much 
energy from all these people. And I love you guys, but man, I am excited to incorporate more knowledge, more experiences, not only for our own growth, but for our listeners. So I am just grateful for this, I guess, just connecting over these books. Um, It's been really great to read. As I mentioned before, I'm only halfway through the after grief, but you know, I just, it's so poignant at this time in my life. And I'm just thankful for this opportunity to get to connect about it and process more. And um, yeah, it's, it's just been really nice. Well, we just want to thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you do and for this beautiful podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank Thank you so much for joining us, Hope. And you are an inspiration to all of us. And um, we wish you well into the rest of your day and the week. And we look forward to connecting with you again. Absolutely. Goodbye, everyone. So nice to spend this time with you. Thank you. Bye, Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening this week, everyone. And thank you to my incredible co-hosts for being present and sharing today. Thank you again to the amazing Hope Edelman for being our memorable first guest. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We release new content every other Tuesday. In our next episode, which drops on March 15th, we'll be diving into the first of a four-part series that will be exploring the mother wound with a focus on our specific experiences related to this concept. You can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pieces of You Podcast. If you love our pod, which we know you do, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be so grateful. And remember, <laughs> if we work together, we can make the broken better. Share your-